Amen. <clears throat> Thank you, Brother Kirby, worship team. Uh, it is a privilege to be up here. Uh, it's an honor. I'm grateful for this opportunity. Um, uh, as we, uh, I'd like to echo what Kirby said, just really grateful for the way uh, Chris set that service up. I specifically wanted to ask, he asked, are there any songs specifically you want to have? And I wanted to say, come behold the marvelous mystery, because it's one of my favorites. I love it. You get four verses, Jesus' incarnation, his perfect life, his death and resurrection. It's one of my favorite new songs, and I was afraid to ask it because I knew we'd only done it once, so I was really glad to see that in there. But um, uh, this morning, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to look a little bit at the ministry of reconciliation this morning. And um, as we've, um, we've gone recently as a church, we went through Acts, and the second half of the book of Acts is all about Paul's life, his missionary journeys, him spreading the gospel and now we're going through Romans, and the first 11 chapters of Romans is Paul going in-depth, explaining what the gospel is, how it happens, how it works. And so I thought to, to try and kind of fit along with that theme, we want to look at just one, one aspect of what the gospel is. Uh, so today we're not going to cover all of it. We spend our entire lives studying all of what the gospel is. But today I want to look specifically at one element of that. And we're going to look at what is reconciliation, what does that mean? And um, uh, beyond that, we also want to look a little bit at, uh, at motivations. What was Paul's motivation that drove him to do what he did? And in some way, we're going to, we're going to look at what is God's motive in reconciling sinners to himself. And so, again, we'll just do one aspect of this. We don't have all of our lives to, to just stay here, and I don't want to talk that long. But we're going to look at that a little bit this morning. So um, we're going to start in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Follow along with me while I read. Paul writing says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray this morning as we begin. 
Lord, I come to you today, and God, I thank you and praise you for the opportunity we have to be here. I thank you for the chance we have again just to look at your word. And God, I pray now that uh, you would fulfill your promise in Isaiah 55, that as your word goes forth where we believe you have sent it, God, it will not return void. So Lord, we want to claim that promise this morning. We want to trust in that and know, Lord, that your word is going forth in your will. And Lord, we pray that this will be an edifying edifying time, an edifying experience for your hearers. Lord, we pray that you'd be with all of us as we look at this text, as we look at your word. God, we pray that you'd help us to see uh, your great love that you have for us. God, I pray that you would help us uh, to see it, to understand it. And Lord, I pray that you would help us and draw us closer to yourself as we look at what it is that you've done for us. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us all now. God, I pray for Uh, for our time, that you would just guide me, give me the words to say, help me to say what I should and nothing that I shouldn't. And Lord, I pray that you'd protect me and the hearers, and Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in our lives this morning. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, As we look at this, we are going to be looking, uh, the conclusion, I'm just going to tell you this right off the bat, The, the points of this sermon are, Paul's motivation was the gospel, The gospel, the part of it that we're going to look at today, is God reconciling us to himself because of his great love. And we're going to get to the point where we're looking at this and trying to understand why is this, and why does God love us, and why why would that happen, why would that affect what he does. And partly, I I want to let you know that because I want you to know that love is a thing, it is a concept that at times completely eludes me. Some of you who know me, that might make sense. Some of you, that may sound really strange. But as a concept, what love is, how that works, how does that happen, that just kind of eludes my understanding. It's, it's a weird concept. I don't always get it. I, I, it's one of those things like glory. People say you don't know how to define glory, but you know it when you see it. I've kind of got that. I have a group of friends. I have a, a small group uh, that I lead. We meet on Tuesdays, and I, I love that group of people. I know those group of people. They, they've told me they love me. We've seen that. I've seen it, but I don't really understand the why and the how and what is, what all of it, what is it that draws people together? Is it just common interest in conversations? Like, I really love sports, and so if I can find somebody else who loves sports, that makes us friend. Is that, is that, is that all there is to it? Is there more than that? Is there, what, what is this love stuff, and where does that come from? And what, what, where, what is the source of all that? Because sometimes it just doesn't make sense. So as we look at this, I want us to get to a place where you share with me this, this thought that God loving us doesn't make any sense. Because if we don't get there, then the gospel ceases to be sweet for us. So with that in mind, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, to begin, let's, let's look a little bit just briefly at what Paul has said before this. This is at least the third or fourth letter Paul has written to the church at Corinth. We know 1 Corinthians, but there's also a couple of other letters in between that got lost to time. We don't know those. We don't have those. They weren't preserved for us. And so we don't have all the letters that Paul wrote to Corinth, but we have 1 and 2 Corinthians. But he's written several letters to them. He's written to them several times. He's been through Corinth. He knows these people. And if you were here when we went through Acts... Um, Chase brought out how Paul is going from town to town, place to place, starting churches, preaching the gospel, and as he leaves, other people would come in behind him and discount everything he had just said, or they would shortchange what he would just said, or they would try and change the message just a little bit. And a part of that was people coming in behind him, 
saying, look, Paul is not an eloquent speaker. He was not articulate. He doesn't know the rhetoric. He doesn't have the rhetorical flair that a lot of these other speakers did. And he wants you to get rid of the law and just follow this Jesus guy. And these people were coming in behind him and dragging people back under the law, saying, if you want to really please God, yeah, sure, follow Paul, trust that Jesus guy like Paul told you, but you also still need to follow the dietary laws follow the laws about what you wear, follow the laws about circumcision, and they would come in after Paul, and they would belittle him and his ministry. So part of 2 Corinthians is Paul writing, after that has happened, he's received word of this, and he writes back to Corinth saying, look, I know these people are coming after you, and I'm not asking you to look at me. What I want you to do is trust in the credentials of the message that you've received. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's, he's, he's defending himself, not because of his own self, but because of the gospel, the message that he preached. And that's what uh, chapters 1 and 2 and part of 3 are all about. And in chapter 3, he tells the Corinthians, look, think of it this way. When Moses got the law from the mountain, he came down and his face shone with the glory of the Lord so brightly that the Israelites asked him to cover his face with a veil. And he gave them the law on two stone tablets. And what Paul's point in chapter 3 is, these guys coming in and telling you to put yourselves back under the law is like Israel asking Moses to veil his face. The glory of God himself was reflected in Moses' face, but Israel asked him to cover that up. And he's saying, not that the law was bad, that too was the gift of God, but God had something greater literally sticking to Moses' face, and they covered it up with a veil. And so Paul uses that imagery, that analogy, and that historical event and says, look, these guys coming in after me telling you, follow the Jewish law, put yourselves back under that law, they're doing the same thing. They are putting you back behind a veil. It's not that the Jewish law was bad or wrong, but there is a greater glory that you are purposefully hiding yourselves from if you don't trust in Christ and you put yourself back under the law. There is something greater than just the law. And so that's where Paul starts in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, he talks about how this is the ministry. This is, this is the message that God has given him. This is what God has called him to do. This is his life's work now, going around telling people about the word of God. And so with that understanding, we come to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, Paul's focus shifts to the future He's, he's focused on the past and what Christ has done and what that is, and now he's shifting his focus to the future, talking about the heavenly dwelling that is to come. It's like we're here on earth now, but there is something coming in the future. It is different, it is better, and we long to be there. And he's longing to be specifically at the end of uh, verse 10. He talks about being in front of God for judgment. He says, we will all be before the throne of God for judgment, receiving, it, what, receiving what is our due based on what we've done in our lives, whether it was good or bad. And so with that in mind, Paul's focus, looking forward to the future, we begin our text in verse 11 this morning. Paul says, again, I'm just going to read the first couple of verses. We're going to go chunk at a time. Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about the outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So Paul is 
he's aware that there's a judgment coming, and he's, he's telling the Corinthians, like, his motivation is pure. His motivation in this is not to puff himself up. His motivation is not to defend himself, to make himself look good. He's not trying to be the greatest teacher that Corinth has ever seen. His motive is not that. His motive is in the heart. His motive is, I want you as a people to receive the gospel of Christ. I know that these guys who came in after me are better speakers. I know they are more articulate. I know they are more eloquent. But I want your heart to follow Christ. So he talks about how uh, he's not commending himself. He's like, we as the apostles, we're not trying to get you to follow us. We want you to follow Christ. Because we don't matter. And we'll get to that a little bit more. Um, but he's talking about that. He starts off saying, knowing the fear of the Lord. It is understanding the judgment that is coming that shapes his perspective. He recognizes that he is not on this earth to please the people of Corinth. He's not on this earth to please the people who are coming in behind him. He is on this earth to follow Christ. He knows the fear of the Lord. He knows the judgment that is coming. And that is what garners his motivation. That is what drives his motivation. There is a judgment coming where I will answer to the only one who can demand an answer of me, and that is the Lord. So he's not worried about people's perception of him. That's why he says, we're not commending ourselves to you again. There's no profit in that. There's no value in that. He's not seeking the approval or the pleasure of the men who are hearing the message. He's seeking the approval of God, and he hopes that the hearers of the truth will accept and receive that. And then go down to verse 13. It says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. And it's kind of, a weird, kind of a weird verse. It makes me think of a Philippians 1 where he says, if For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Like he's, he's, he's kind of speaking in poetically, in poetic language, and it's, it's kind of hard to understand. But in, in light of verse 12, what he's saying is... Um, I'm not, I'm not bragging about myself because I want you to think well of me. I want you to be able to defend yourself for following me. It's like, I know you trust me. I know you've received my gospel. So I want you to be able to defend yourself against these new people who come in with a different gospel. And so he says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. The, the phrase beside ourselves, literally, he's just saying, if we're crazy. Paul is fully willing to admit these people say we're crazy, and we kind of are. He, he's willing to accept that. He's willing to embrace that. Paul is crazy, and he says, but if we're crazy, we're crazy for God. We are literally out of our minds about this Jesus. Think about, what, think about the life Paul has led. If, we, if you were with us when we went through Acts, all of the suffering that he endured, being beaten, being shipwrecked, just being cast out of towns. He's preaching the gospel to people who should be receiving it and responding joyfully, and they grab him and throw him in prison. They run him out of town. He endures a lot. Um, in Philippians 2.17 and 2 Timothy 4.6, he uses the same phrase. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering for you. He viewed his life as an offering to God Specifically, he uses the imagery of the drink offering, which is a liquid in a bottle that you pour out. It's not a, not a hard concept for us to grasp. He, he uses that image. I am already a drink offering being poured out for you. Paul literally was willing to give his own life. And he's like, that's weird to some people. I know it. <laughs> that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. 
So if they say we're crazy, yeah, sure, we're crazy. We are crazy about this God. He is really worth our entire lives. And if we get poured out as a drink offering, we can be poured out. That's fine. We're willing to embrace that. Uh, Romans 8.36, Paul quotes from uh, Psalm 44, and he says, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. Paul did not regard his life as something that he needed to hang on to. So he tells his followers, look, if, you, if they accuse you of following a guy who's crazy, you, you might just have to own up to that one. You might just have to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul, that guy, that apostle who we're following his teaching, yeah, yeah, he, he really truly was kind of crazy. Because what he did does not make sense according to the mindset of the world. And then he goes on, he says, if we're beside ourselves, it is for God. But if we are of our right mind, it is for you. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. This is kind of the flip side. He's like, if, if we are in our right mind, if this does make sense, it's of your benefit. Because I'm asking you to follow me as I follow Christ. And these people are coming at you saying, you shouldn't follow Paul. But if I'm in my right mind, if this really is the logical conclusion to what Christ has done, then it is of your benefit that I'm teaching you this. It is, of your, it is to your benefit that you would follow me, that it would, you'd do what seems out of our mind. And if, it's, if it does make sense, if it is the right reaction, then it's to your benefit that I'm telling you about all this. Because you need to hear it, because you need to know. Because if this is the right reaction, you need to react this way as well. So even if they think I'm crazy, that's fine. And that is for God's glory and if they think that I'm in the right mind, if they think, if they realize this is the right response, praise the Lord, follow along, let's do this. And so it's a weird verse, it's kind of confusing, but Paul is willing to admit, look, the people of this world may not understand this. They may not get this, but it does make sense. And even if you don't think it makes sense, I'm willing to go that far. Well, why? What is... Here we kind of get into a little bit, what is Paul's motivation? How can Paul say that with such boldness? How can Paul hold to the idea that being outside of his own mind is okay? Well, let's look at verse 14 and 15. Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ takes control in our lives. That's both ways. That is, the love Christ showed for us, and that's what he talks about in the next couple phrases, that he would give himself, he would die for us. And the love that is spawned from that, from us, to Christ. Um, um, as I was reading and listening to things about this, uh, somebody brought up Jonathan Edwards, said love comes in two categories. There is complacent love and there is benevolent love. And benevolent love is love that is undeserved, it is giving, it is sacrificial, and it is, weight, it is weighed based on how undeserved it is. So love is more benevolent if the object of that love is less deserving. And God loves us with this benevolent love. 
And the other side of that is this complacent love, which it's, it's, it's an older use of the word complacent, not like apathetic or lethargic, but it means literally along the place of, along with the place of being. So basically it just means because it's there. And that's what we have towards God, our complacent love, which is we delight in the goodness that God is. We delight in the goodness that we receive from God. And this is partly why I said at the beginning, like the concept of love sort of eludes me sometimes. Because in Scripture, we're commanded to love, and we're told to love people who cannot love us, have nothing to offer us. So we're commanded to have this benevolent love. And that is what is seen as good. That is what's seen as what's morally praiseworthy. But when it comes to God, we can never love God in a benevolent way. Because he's worth everything. He's worth all of it. You cannot give God love he doesn't deserve. You cannot give God a love that he's unworthy of. So our love for him cannot be this benevolent love. It's this complacent love where we see his goodness. We see his mercy. We see his kindness. And we glory in that. We rejoice in that. We love him because of the good gifts he has given us. We cannot love him in that benevolent category, but his love for us, which is benevolent, spawns in us a love towards him that is complacent. It's there because it's there. (laughs) You can't help but stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and think, wow, this is beautiful. You cannot help but be confronted with God's love and rejoice. You cannot help but look at God's forgiveness of our sins and be grateful and loving towards him because of that. Now, it's complacent because we're the receivers of that. We're not giving in that. And it will spawn action. It will motivate us. It will drive us, and that's what we're going to get to. But that love in, this, in these two categories is a complacent love. God loves us benevolently. We love him complacently. And Paul says, this love of Christ controls the love that Christ has shown me, the love that I feel towards Christ, this controls me. It is the motivation. It is why I do the things that I do. He says, why? What's the reason? Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ was killed, and he was raised again for your sake. Not because we've earned it, but he did that. He did that for us. His love for us, he died so that you can be alive. And this is, what, this is the love of Christ that controlled Paul. And it's not always easy. It doesn't always come naturally. Um, I was listening to a Matt Chandler sermon some time ago, and he said, there are days when obedience is like breathing. You wake up, and the Lord calls you to do something, and it's like, sure, of course, why not? And it's just easy. It's, it's, it's naturally the first inclination you have is to obey God. And there are other times when loving God And obeying God feels like an all-out assault on your hopes and dreams. 
There are times, and I feel that way. I feel that way sometimes. There are times when to do what God wants means I have to love him more than I love myself. It means I have to sacrifice my own wants, my own wishes, my own desires. And it's times like that when the love of Christ has to control me. Because that desire is not in here. It's just not. But the love of Christ controlled Paul because he was constantly reminded, he was constantly meditating on, thinking on the fact that Christ died for him. And because Christ died for him, his life belonged to Christ. He owed a life debt to Christ because of the sacrifice that Christ had made. We've got to move on for time because... We're only a part way through. That was like the introduction. Now we want to get into like the real, the heart of reconciliation. <clears throat> reconciliation, uh, as we read the passage in Colossians 1, uh, talked about how we were once alienated from Christ. There was an aspect in which, because of our sin, the relationship that man had with God was broken. We were alienated from him, we were broken in our relationship, and there's a distance there, there's a gap and so that's a problem. If you want to please God, but you're alienated from him, there's a real, real problem there. So let's go on. And this is kind of Paul's, Paul's conclusion based on 11 through 15. Starting in verse 16, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So what is he, what's he getting at there? We don't regard anyone according to the flesh. He says there is a way that we normally look at the world around us. There is a way that we normally see things. How do you observe stuff on earth, this life? You've got five senses, touch, hearing, smelling, tasting, seeing. Is that all five? Um, yeah. Uh, so we've got five senses. There's, there's a way by which we observe this world around us. And we kind of have to rely on that. But there's, there's serious limitations to that. You know this if you're, if you're raising your children. You realize you can see what they're doing sometimes, but you have no understanding of why they're doing this. What is it that drives a kid with a fork towards a toaster or an electrical outlet? Like There's a sense in which you can see what's going on, but you have to interpret the, the pure data of, I see a kid with a fork going at a socket, and you have to interpret that to realize that's a bad thing. And so what Paul is saying is there is a manner in which we always interpret every experience we have. There's a way in which we interpret this. There's a way in which we view ourselves and other people. And Paul's saying the way that we do that is deficient. And because Christ died for us, we know that that is deficient. He says we regard no one according to the flesh. How do, how, how do we do that now? How does that happen? How do we evaluate other people? What, do we, what are the things we look at? Well, how are they dressed? What kind of a job do they have? If you've been over their house, how nice is their house? How clean do they keep their house? We evaluate people on these everyday things. And that's to a degree where we place our values and how we understand, well, how are they doing in life? Are they comfortable? Have they accumulated enough stuff? And Paul is saying that is not the way we regard people anymore. He says we used to think about Christ that way. But when he died and was resurrected, he reshaped our thinking. 
not just because, oh, we were following this guy, Jesus, he died, we got scared, but then he got resurrected, whew, dodged a bullet there because we were following a guy who died. No, it's, it's, it's more than that. He's saying this fundamentally shapes the way you view Christ. This fundamentally will shape the way you view other people. The way that you used to view the world is symptomatic of your alienation from God. Your motivations, the way they used to be, is symptomatic of an alienation from God. The American dream is born out of an alienation from God. That motivation, I want to have a nice house, reliable car, nice family, just comfort. If that's your goal, if that's your ambition in life, if that's what you're aiming toward, then you're regarding the world according to this flesh. You're regarding everyone and everything in your own self according to the old way, according to the flesh. And Paul is saying the resurrection of Christ doesn't just mean Jesus is alive. It reshapes the way we regard everything. Paul specifically used to regard Christ as an enemy. He persecuted the church. He chased Christians down to kill them or put them in jail. He was at the stoning of Stephen. And he says the resurrection of Christ, for Paul, seeing him on the Damascus Road, that revolutionized the way he regards people now. We sang it in several of the songs we sang this morning. Once an enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. Paul experienced that firsthand. God stopped him on the road to Damascus, blinded him, and said, why are you fighting me? Paul had no idea that what he was doing was wrong. Seeing the resurrected Christ changed the way he thought about everything, changed the way he saw everything. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The way you view other people needs to reflect this as well. And this is, this is getting back at Paul's very first point. We don't regard ourselves or each other the way that the world does. We see that everyone on this planet is either reconciled with God or estranged from God. Everyone you encounter, you need to see as either someone who has a relationship with Christ or someone who is alienated from him. And that is the way that we view people now. We no longer regard people according to the flesh. They are either a new creation or they're the old creation. And the old creation is terrifying because that means they're alienated from God. They do not have a relationship with him. And it is our job, it is our duty, it is our calling, we'll see in the next few verses, to go and share that. Because we do not want to leave the world in that state. We do not want to leave the world alienated from God. So now let's look at 18 through 20. All this is from God. This whole mind shift, the paradigm shift is from God. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So here Paul is saying that 
God was doing this work in Christ. God was opening the door to reconcile people to himself. Paul's motivation for doing what he did, serving the way he did, pouring his life out as a drink offering is this gospel. Knowing that Christ died and was raised again, that was Paul's motivation. And now God has given us the call to go out and share that with others. We are ambassadors for Christ. We regard people as spiritual beings. We know that this life is not all there is. We know that the world at large is alienated from God. And it is up to us, because we are the ones who have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. It is your job to tell people they can be reconciled to God. In verse 11, he says, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And here he says, uh, we are God making his appeal through us, be reconciled to God. God is begging people to come back to a relationship with him. And he does that through us, through the church. The church, the body of Christ, the people who name the name of Christ are the principal means by which God is going to accomplish this work. He has entrusted to us the stewardship of the ministry of reconciliation. It is to us to go to the world and tell them their alienation from God does not have to be permanent, does not have to be forever. God has made a way. Is that not the greatest news they could ever hear? Is that not the greatest need they have that can be fulfilled? I think what gets in the way a lot of times is we still regard people according to the flesh. We meet a stranger and we don't want to be that weird guy. We don't want to be that weird Christian who's always talking about Jesus all the time. We don't want to have those difficult conversations. We just, we just kind of want to do our own thing, be left to ourselves. I go to church, I'm a Christian. Boy, I wish everybody else would get saved. But we are too often concerned with what other people will think. We are too often thinking the way we used to too often willing to engage in conversations about politics or sports or the arts or whatever it is and not really realizing that there's a world around us going to hell and God has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. God preparing a way to repair the relationship with him that was broken and destroyed. We've been entrusted with that. We have the opportunity to go and share that with the world, to let them know the path you are on does not have to be final. You have an opportunity to be reconciled with the very God of the universe. This also gets us into the point where the whole love not making sense thing comes up. In verse 18, sorry, verse 19, it says, That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, that is inherently problematic. I, it's, it's strange that God does this and that he chooses that wording. God chooses not to hold their trespasses against them. In Exodus 34, the Lord is talking to Moses. Moses has already destroyed the first set of tablets where God gave him the Ten Commandments. He's up there on the mountain. God's giving him a second set. And the Lord speaks to Moses uh, Exodus 34, verse 6, says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we like that. It's happy. It's positive. The Lord steadfast in love, forgiveness, mercy, abounding. That's great. But he's not done. He says, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. How do you reconcile that? How do you have a God who is steadfast in mercy and faithfulness, always abounding in love, ready to forgive, but who will not clear the guilty and punishes sin for generation and generation? How does that work? How does that happen? How is it that in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that God has chosen not to hold their trespasses against them? Does that make sense? How? Let's, let's, let's take just a real quick brief history of the Old Testament to see what are, what are some of these things. What are some of the trespasses that God is choosing not to hold against his people? Go back to Genesis. In the Garden of Eden... We're not too far in. We've got two humans on earth and one of them messes up. And then the other one messes up. So you've got two humans on earth and they sin. The fall happens almost immediately, it seems like, after creation. And it, it, it escalates quickly because they have kids and then Cain kills Abel. We've gone from eating an apple to murder in one generation. And then the wickedness grows up until the flood. And in Genesis 6, it says the thoughts of man were only evil continually. And that's when the flood comes and God preserves his people through Noah. And then after that, as soon as they, they get off the ark and Noah is drunk, as soon as the grapes are ripe. And then after that, you've got the Tower of Babel where people who are seeking their own glory try to build a tower to reach up to God. Humanity is not really, uh, they're striking out big time. They're not doing well. And that's Genesis. That's the first 12 chapters. Then you get Abraham. God calls Abraham and says, all right, you, with you, I'm going to start. I'm going to make a nation out of you, and you're going to be my people. And Abraham has doubts. And Abraham tries to take matters into his own hands. And you get the whole ordeal with Hagar and Ishmael. And then his kids are not, uh, they don't follow the Lord either. You get Isaac and Jacob who are tricksters and liars and connivers. Joseph's brothers who are liars and they all but kill Joseph. And then in the Exodus you get Moses. Moses prays some audacious prayers, flat out argues with God. God says, hey, I'm going to send you back to Egypt. You're going to free my people. And Moses says, uh-uh, I can't speak well. I'm not a speaker. I can't do that. He flat out tells God, no. How is he not burnt then? Like, how is God like, okay, fine, and picks the next guy? I mean, how does that not result in his immediate death? But Moses prays some audacious prayers, flat out tells God, no. And then Israel, finally, they do get out of Egypt, and they're in the wilderness, and they're complaining perpetually. And then when they finally come to the promised land, after the wilderness wanderings, they look in, they see the land, it's full of giants, and they say, mm, not today. And they spend 40 years in the wilderness wandering. Because even after they got to the promised land, they didn't trust. 
They failed God then. And then when they finally come around, they get to uh, the Jordan River. The time comes, they cross into the Promised Land. They go to Jericho, Achan, steal stuff. They all get defeated badly at Ai because they had sin in the camp. And all throughout uh, Joshua, they're supposed to be driving out the land, and the repeated refrain is, they did a little bit, they got some of the people to the edges of the land, but they didn't wipe them out like God told them to, so they were a problem for the rest of their days. And in Joshua, even when they're doing a good thing, they're conquering the land that God has given them, even then, when they kind of obeyed, they only partly obeyed then. Then you come to the book of Judges, and that's just a mess. The book of the Judges is God saying, look, this is God's people who had God's law and God gave them leaders and they continually failed. And it just gets worse and worse and it's spiraling out of control and the end of Judges is just three tragic stories of God's people walking away from God's law. And then God establishes a monarchy. He establishes that. He gives Israel a king to to point people to himself. And Saul is a wicked king, does all sorts of stuff wrong. Even David, who's the man after God's own heart, he's primarily known for a few things, slaying Goliath, being the greatest king in Israel, and sleeping with Bathsheba and getting Hariah killed. So even David, who's known as like the greatest ever in Israel, he's not perfect at all by any stretch of the imagination. But in 2 Corinthians, God says he's, he's not going to hold all that against them. He's not going to hold that against his people. Think about our own lives. Think about our own sins, our sinful attitudes, our sinful thoughts. How willing are we to, 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 to villainize anybody who thinks differently than we do? We don't share the love of Christ with other people because if they look different or they think different or they have a different bumper sticker than what I wanted, then no way. All of our sinful thoughts, our attitudes, the words we say, losing our temper, all these things, God says there's a way where that gets taken care of. I will not hold their trespasses against them. And that's when we get to 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we could become the righteousness of God. And... uh, As we go through Romans, Chase will be hitting this left and right all throughout. The Lord made a way with his benevolent love to save us. He gave us the opportunity to be reconciled to him. He gave us Christ who died in our place. Because for all of this sin, for all of your sin and my sin, we deserve to die. That's that's what we've earned. That's what we have merited But God made a way. And if you've grown up in church, if you're familiar with this, if you've heard it all your life, if you've been hearing this for years, it's really familiar. And we've we've kind of forgotten, well, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) Why would God send his holy son to die in our place? Why? Why? What have I done to deserve that? What have you done to deserve that? How have we earned that kind of love where God would send his innocent son to die in our place? What could possibly be a motivation for that? Why? 
And we know, well, it's it's because of God's love. But why that? Why? We know God sent Christ because he loved us. It says for... um, He said earlier, for our sake, he died and was raised again. Okay, but why again? Just keep keep going back. What's the motivation? What is it that God desires that would drive him to do such a thing? It's crazy. It makes no sense for God to love me. It doesn't. It just doesn't make any sense. But he does. We know that. What's his, what's his goal? What is the motivation that Christ has? For that, I go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. You can turn there with me or I'll just read it. 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's a passage that hit me years ago and I, could, I cannot get past it. I cannot grasp it. I cannot, I cannot absorb it in the way I think it was meant to. It's something that just stirs me every time I read it or think about it. 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is now the king, and he's sitting on the throne, and this is kind of after the the land has been established, his palace has been built, he's done, and he's sitting in his palace just thinking. He's done done with his work, he has time to sit and think, and this is the, the thought that comes to his mind. It says, now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now... I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So David looks out and he says, look, I have this great big palace, fitting for a king. He's okay with that. But God lives in a tent. The tabernacle was there. The temple had not been built yet. And so David looks out and he says, it is not right for me to have this great palace while God, the ark of the covenant, is sleeping in a tent. And Nathan says, you know what? That's a good thought. Go with that. But look in verse 4. It says, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all of the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And God goes on through Nathan, and he he talks to David, and he says, You wanted to build me a house. I'm going to establish you as a nation. I'm going to establish you and your family line as a, a royal line. You're going to be king, and your sons will be king, and that's going to continue on. But those seven verses, just God's initial response is what really, really struck me. Why would God reconcile people to himself? Why? He doesn't need us. He's the God of the universe. He does not need us. What's the point? He he tells David, look, I've been with you through everything. What was it like in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve? They walked daily with him, fellowshipping with God in the Garden of Eden. Think about all this. Through through Noah, 120 years, building a boat in the middle of the desert. But God was there with him. Think about Abraham. Think about Abraham taking Isaac up a mountain, having to tie him down to an altar, 
Hebrews tells us later that he believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. How do you, how do you stand over your own son with a knife and not tremble, not shake, not fall to pieces? Well, the Lord was with him. The Lord showed himself to him then right after. Think about Exodus and all the wanderings that they had going through the wilderness. God provided manna, provided quail, provided for his people. He led them with a pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. Destroyed Egypt when they came back after chasing them. God was with them there. He was with them through all that time. As they conquered the promised land, God was with them. Think about David's life itself. As he was a shepherd, his sheep were attacked by a lion. They were attacked by a bear. He took them down himself. Facing Goliath, a giant, a man of war, he stands up and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defiles the name of our God? And a teenage boy with a slingshot goes down and fights a giant on God's behalf. And so now David, as the king, comes to this realization. He says, I want to build God a house. And God's answer is, you think I need a house? You think that's my desire? You think I just want a nice place there on earth? What is God's desire? Why is he content? He says, I've been with you from the beginning. It is the sincerest desire of God's heart just to be with his people. He doesn't need a house. He doesn't need grandeur. He doesn't need anything we can offer him. He just has a people. He has us. And it is his sincerest desire that he would relate to us. He brings us to him. He made a way of reconciliation. Not because we've deserved it. Not because we've earned it. We're terrible. We're terribly wicked. But God made a way. Why? Because he wants to have a people for himself. He's, he's done that. He has designed that. Um, in Hosea 2, he gives Hosea the command, go out and marry a woman who's going to be unfaithful. And she's going to have children. And you're going to name one of them Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy. And you're going to name the other one Lo-Ami, which means not my people. And he tells Hosea after this, he says, go and find this woman. She's going to have these children. She's going to leave you. Go get her back. And so Hosea does, and he says, all right, now I'm going to tell you, I'm going to make no mercy, and I'm going to tell them I have mercy on you. And I'm going to look at not my people, and I'm going to make them a people, and I will be their God. Go to Revelation 21. We talked about how in the Garden of Eden, this is how the world started, God and Adam and Eve fellowshipping. Revelation 21, starting in the, the verse, first four verses, John writes and says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God's desire, the motive that God has given for reconciliation is he wants his people. He wants his people so that he can be the God to his people, that he is. He can be that God. He can be recognized as that. 
He can be recognized, he can be served, he can be worshipped as the God of his people. Colossians 1, like Jim read, uh, he's reconciling us that he can present us blameless before him. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He has reconciled us to make a people for himself. He wants to be God in our lives. He wants to be God in our hearts. And maybe that means your life is going to be crazy like Paul's. Maybe if you're a Christian and God has reconciled you to him, you might be called to do crazy stuff. Your life to be poured out like a drink offering. But either way, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Even if you're not called to the craziness of life, God's given all of us the ministry of reconciliation. There are people in your life who need to know that God has made a way for them to be reconciled to him. If you're here, if you're a visitor with us this morning, maybe, that's, maybe this is all new to you, maybe you don't know. Maybe you've never been reconciled to God. Well, we'd love to help you with that. Find, just talk to anybody who's been here before, they'll find someone who can help you, if they can't themselves. But if you're a visitor, if this is weird to you, then like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, we implore you, be reconciled to God. And if you have, God has entrusted that ministry to you. There are people around you who need to know God has made a way they can be reconciled to him. So I pray that we would take this this morning, be reconciled to God, and share that with others. Let's pray. Lord, I come to you tonight. God, I pray and I thank you for reconciliation. God, I thank you that it is your heart's desire that we would be reconciled to you. God, I thank you that you have a desire for us in spite of our weakness, in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our wickedness, God, you have prepared a way. You've made a way. You desire still for all of our rebellion and all of our hatred of you and your word. Lord, you, have, you still desire to have us as a people. So Lord, we pray that you would change our hearts, change our thoughts, help us not to regard anyone according to the flesh in the way we used to. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to realize that this is a ministry of reconciliation you have trusted us with. We need to be reconciled to you. And Lord, we need to tell other people that they can be. There is an open door where you are inviting people in. We need to tell them to be reconciled to God. Lord, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. Thank you for loving us in a way we could never earn, we could never deserve. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us as we go. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.